Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 34, Elaine, A Feast for Crows 1. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor or at liesandarborgold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana, and you might know me as Glass Table Girl on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit or on Maester Monthly. Hello, everyone. Hey. Yeah, I guess people have sent us messages, but we're going to just highlight one this week. Yeah, we got a good, a good comment of note. A Podbean comment of note. This one comes from Loran Timmons. It says, hey, ladies, I love the podcast. Just thought I'd leave a Podbean comment for Eliana's happiness. <laughs> Keep up the wonderful work. And it did make me happy, and I just wanted to share that with all of you. I grinned when I saw it. I was like, aw. Aw. People send us in, like, things about the story, but, you know, <laughs> we do things for my happiness here. Yeah, we do have a couple emails sitting there. We'll uh, we'll get to some. We'll get to some. We have a good one. I think we could save one for next week, maybe. For sure. Man, well, what about our lightning round? I guess let's jump on in. Yeah, we moved on to our next POV. But before we talk about what's happening there, let's talk about what's happening in the other POVs, starting with the Kraken's daughter. Asha's supporters assemble for the Queen's moot. Thank you very much. It is a Queen's moot. <laughs> I will not be accepting any constructive criticism. In Cersei 3, Tommen and Marjorie wet, and Cersei brings down the Tower of the... And then we have the Soiled Knight. Ares Oakheart is forced to choose. Crown... Or lose your princesses. Both? Both of these princesses? In Brienne 3, Brienne is forced to reckon with the cruel ghosts of her past, and she meets another new companion on the road. Samwell 2. Maester Aemon helps Sam understand Gilly's grief in their voyage mm -hmm. to Bravos. Truly sad. Jamie 2. Jamie has a bad day. He fights with his uncle, with Cersei and Loras, and he even gets some really bad PTSD from the Kingsguard thrown on in there. Ooh. Speaking of Cersei, Cersei 4. Cersei and her new small council deal with matters of state, such as the Dornish unrest, or perhaps even the Vale's matter of succession, the entire North in general, and of course, finding a good match for her good daughter. Yes, for Marjorie, The Iron Captain. Victorian attempts to broker an alliance for victory in obtaining the sea stone chair. The drowned man. A king rises from the deep. I feel like my voice at least makes some of these sound more ominous and dramatic right now. Yeah, absolutely. Very, like, shadowy and... <laughs> Crackety. <laughs> from the, the deep. deep. Okay. Brienne 4. Brienne learns she can no longer trust while trading out one companion for a lesser annoying, bullying, and awful companion who's the worst, and I hate him, and I get to say what I want because it's my podcast. Fuck Isle Hunt. For sure. That's <laughs> what I said. Agreed. Next is the Queen's Maker. After convincing Ares to become her own Kristen Cole, whom we've never discussed on this podcast before, <laughs> Marcella suffers disfigurement because someone told, someone always tells. Or do they? Arya, too. Much like her sister, Arya is working hard at losing her identity. She's thrust out into Bravos, taking the name Cat, which is much like one half of her mother's name. While Elaine takes the other half. 
And so we meet a new character today. She is 14, bold and apt. Elaine Stone has spent her years living in a convent until one day her father, the Lord Protector of the Vale, question mark, question mark, Peter Baelish, <laughs> sends for her. Tonight they spin a web of careful lies and truths to the other lords, and Elaine learns some very valuable lessons. What a great new character. In a great new place. Yeah, Feast is full of new characters. Yes. Elaine awakens in the Maiden's Tower of the Eerie. Gretchel fetches her bedrobe and a log for the fire. Her new chambers are much larger than the apartment she kept when Lady Liza was alive, and judging by the wardrobe, these are Liza's chambers. We got some really good, like, eerie world-building porn here. Like, I don't know. It's just beautiful. There's marble and stuff. The stone was cold beneath her feet, and the wind was blowing fiercely, as it always did up here. But the view made her forget all that for half a heartbeat. Maidens was the easternmost of the eerie seven slender towers, so she had the veil before her. Its forests and rivers and fields all hazy in the morning light. The way the sun was hitting the mountains made them look like solid gold. I love just that there's this great connection between this is, there's seven towers and the andals are of the veil, of course, now. That's that's who won and that's the veil. And of course, there's this line of maidens was the easternmost of the towers uh, of the seven. And the maiden is, of course, kind of what we associate with Sansa the most. Yep. And that's where she's staying. You can also see... In my opinion, some of Sansa healing here. Definitely reading too much into it, but she talks about how the sun makes everything look like it's all gold and it's splendid. And she's no longer associating gold to be so awful like that of the Lannisters. Yeah, it is very nice. It's pretty. It's a nice morning. Pretty. Sansa, along with that nice morning, is watching the Giant's Lance. And Alyssa's frozen tears. There's a, there's a lot of uh, landmarks here. And a blue falcon soars overhead, and Sansa thinks that she wishes she too had wings. Very on-the-nose veil imagery here, though, right? Like, a blue falcon soars overhead. Maybe that's John Aaron, and when he died, he warged into a bird. Are you sure it's not Marillion? I mean, after all, Liza did give Marillion that falcon. Yeah, he's a songbird. Yeah. He's the little bird. But now he's like a big bird. Oh my god. She watches out into the vale, seeing the camps of the Lord Declarants stir. If only they were truly ants, she thought. We could step on them and crush them. Because, yeah, just because Chloe and I called this out now. Again, <laughs> calling the lower people of lower classes than you. Uh, insects or ants. What what are you doing? Chill out. I wonder to what extent it's Littlefinger's influence getting to her here, especially since some of that imagery of them being smaller and beneath them is how it would feel if one were a giant. But also, I mean, like, I guess this isn't the first time we've seen someone of the noble classes doing that. So. Completely. Like, Sansa, you can't just call people ants. Yeah. And then think about stepping on them. But people probably did look like ants from there. You know what I'm saying? Oh, for sure. They get this passage with a ton of exposition. Young Lord Hunter and his levies had joined the others two days past. Nestor Royce had closed the gates against them, but he had fewer than 300 men in his garrison. Each of the Lord's declarant had brought a thousand, and there were six of them. Elaine knew their names as well as her own. Benadar Belmore, Lord of Strongsong. Simon Templeton, the Knight of Nine Stars. 
Horton Redfort, Lord of Redfort, Anya Wainwood, Lady of Iron Oaks, Gilwood Hunter, called Young Lord Hunter by all and sundry, Lord of Longbow Hall, and Yon Royce, mightiest of them all, the redoubtable Bronze Yon, Lord of Runestone, Nestor's cousin and the chief of the senior branch of House Royce. The six had gathered at Runestone after Liza Aaron's fall, and there made a pact together, vowing to defend Lord Robert, the Vale, and one another. Their declaration made no mention of the Lord Protector, but spoke of misrule that must be ended, and of false friends and evil counselors as well. I wonder if that phrasing's going to come back uh, in Sansa's arc in A Dream of Spring. You know, false friends, evil counselors, vowing to end misrule. Reminds me of the language when uh, Stannis is all like, foes and false friends all around mm. me, Lord Davos, or something like that. That's a subtweet if I've ever seen one. They make Littlefinger sound like he's fucking Jafar, and I mean, I'm not saying Littlefinger's not. Yeah. To prepare for the Lord's Declarant coming, Sansa heads back inside, and she's deciding on what to wear. We learn about a bunch of the different clothing choices that she has. She's inherited a lot of Liza's clothes, but not everything fits her as well, because, you know, Liza was many years older than her and, like, had a child. I guess... Liza was also petite, because Sansa, at age 13, is basically as tall as her aunt was at 20, so it's a good thing she had all that nutrition. Sansa decides to choose a gown that is in the Tully red and blue, and pins back her hair that she has recently re-dyed, but she has to keep dyeing it regularly as the red roots come back in very quickly, and she wonders how much longer is this dye gonna last? I mean, we had to get it shipped in from Tyroche. It's a lot. And they're obviously being cut off right now from other supplies, let alone hair dye. I like that this language kind of suggests, of course, the illusion is fading. Her carriage has turned into a pumpkin, or maybe her hair has turned into a pumpkin, I guess. Uh, it, it's the riches to rags or rags to riches thing that came back, right? Sometime in the future, I expect her to pull out her glass slipper, which, like we talked about last couple episodes, she lost it in that last Storm of Sword episode, and uh, use it to save herself. Heading to breakfast, Sansa thinks about how quiet it is in the Eyrie. And it's quiet because there's no one training, there are no hounds barking, there are no horses, just the howling of the wind. And I think it's left unsaid, but the quietness also implies that there's no singing. Right. As well. Breakfast isn't quiet, though. Sweet Robin complains that he wants eggs and bacon, but no porridge. Of course, to get food, the Eerie depends on someone like Maya Stone to bring fresh food from the valley. But the Lord's Declarant are camped around the base of the castle, and they're keeping her from coming up with the food. It's basically a political siege. They're starving the rich out from their lifestyle to hear the other noble's message, which is, we don't want Littlefinger, which is also, in fact, everyone's message forever since he was born and existed. Like, his dad was like, go away. Hoster Tully was like, go away. Brandon Stark was like, go away. Cersei was like, go away. Yeah. No one really wants him around. Yeah, get a job. <laughs> And he's just like, no, I'm going to just bomb in my dead wife's house. Whatever. God, he's trash. That's really what he's doing. Sansa tries to coax sweet Robin into eating his porridge. And she's like, ooh, look at how tasty it is. I, too, am eating it. I've definitely tried that with my dog before. Um, Does it work? No. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, with the dogs, yeah, kind of. 
It's so sad. Poor Sansa, right? Like, yay, my next husband is so great. I love marriage. Like, mm, crib life. Sweet Robin says, no, I'm not going to eat the porridge because, first of all, I'm not hungry. I'm incredibly tired because Marillion's singing kept me up all night. It sounds like, oh, there was no singing. I would have heard it. Marillion's dead. Yeah, so is, is he dead or what? Because it's almost like this could be a lie that they're telling him and they're still keeping him alive because the Lord's Declarant obviously wanted to meet him and see, you know, the story and the whole nine yards. So did they just tell Robert that he was dead? What happened there? I get the sense that Marillion is either actually dead or Sansa at the very least also believes that Marillion is dead. I mean, you could have some blue bard thing happen to him. But earlier in that chapter, she is, again, thinking about how great it was that she had this wonderful night's sleep and that it's very, very quiet in the eerie. And I think that sort of description is meant to contrast with how, like, annoying and horrible it was last chapter where we had to listen to all of Marillion's very, very sad songs. And, I don't know, that silence and the description of that nice morning... Here feels just a lot lighter. Yeah, they go back and forth for a while, kind of how kids do, right? Uh, Littlefinger comes in and he tries to order Sweet Robin to eat porridge. Maester Coleman agrees. And through this, we learn the Bannermen are coming up and nobody wants them to be there. And I get this, especially like, I remember that anxious, awkward, dreadful teenager feeling, right? Of knowing and feeling something's wrong and you're going to get in trouble and something bad's going to happen. But... It's kind of more than just that for Sansa here. Yeah, and she's also like, I don't even know what they want. Like, leave us alone. What did we even do wrong? Just send us eggs and bacon. Yeah. But, I mean, I get it from their perspective. <laughs> Littlefinger's done a lot. I get it. Sansa doesn't exactly have the most stable savior right now. <laughs> he's not very liked yeah. by anyone. Yeah, even though uh, George says he's supposed to be, but... Mm. Uh -huh. I get the sense that, especially amongst the people in King's Landing, it's not that Littlefinger's liked. People just think yeah. he's harmless and trust him. Fly on the wall. Yeah. We get a lot of information now about someone else who's coming up with the Lord's Declaron, and that's Lynn Corbray, who's a very scary and dangerous man, especially on the battlefield, which leads to this whole info dump on the Corbray brothers. The actual Lord is Lionel Corbray, and his brother is Lynn Corbray. And Lionel Corbray supports Peter Baelish. Allegedly, Lynn Corbray does not. But, I mean, like, this is a reread. Alright, you all know what happens in this chapter. You know what's gonna happen. And that Lynn Corbray, we're gonna find out in, like, a minute, is, in fact, also supporting Peter Baelish, kind of. But Lionel is apparently very salty because when their father died during Robert's Rebellion, Lionel got the castles and the lands and the money, the title. He got everything that, like, any of, of the first sons get, but he didn't get the sword because Lynn Corbray was, like, super good on the battlefield, which, like, I this has never happened before in the Song of Ice and Fire. I've never heard about this happening <laughs> in Westeros ever in my life. There are actually so many parallels with the Corbrays here. There are, like, three different branches of Corbrays. There's a lot of Corbray history. There's... Leowin Corbray, he was protector of the realm for a hot stint in Egg Three's reign, and his younger brother Corwin. Corwin married Raina, Bela's sister, and he commanded an army under Lord Rowan after Jane Aaron died to settle the matter of secession between Joffrey Aaron, the chosen heir, a cousin, 
and Sir Arnold Aaron and Sir Isambard Aaron, who is the head of house. Corwin protects the heir and imprisons Isambard and Arnold, and he executes Sir Eldrick Aaron, Sir Arnold's son. But Sir Arnold escapes to Runestone, the Royce seat. Kind of interesting. And of course, interesting enough, we also have in history Sir Gawain Corbray, who was master at arms for Magor on Dragonstone. And he had quite the opposite problem. Magor did, right? His brother gave him the sword because he was bookish and would never use it. Uh, and he was, of course, known as deadly, like Lynn. Lynn just, like, he, he showed up and he killed a bunch of Dornish men and his dad high-fived him and was like, here's a sword. Good job. And Lionel's like, Dad, love me. I tried to be perfect for you. And Lynn's who killed Lewin, by the way. You remember that? Yes. Yes. That, that is also in this info dump. Yes. So keep that in mind. It's just, if you ever want an example, right, uh, cough, cough, the black fires of someone being gifted a sword and it, like, just being like, I gave this to you because you seem to like this mm -hmm. thing. You seem to like killing. But someone else is going to do the ruling. Like, this is it, everyone. The sword is not the kingdom. Liza uh, got pretty pissed. The Corbrays asked Liza to take Sweet Robin as a ward, we learn. And she thought the Corbrays didn't truly love her. So she was pissed about it. Which, like, of course, that was her weakness, right? When uh, you get that whole speech from Cersei to Sansa, like, Sansa, do you want to be loved? Liza wanted to be loved, and love is a poison, right? Right? And Littlefinger knew that. He knew mm -hmm. that about Liza. I mean, in Liza's defense, I wouldn't foster my kid with the Corbrays either. I'd, I'd foster him at the Royces. That'd be fine. We'll get to that. Yeah, the Royces seem cool. I would send him, like, elsewhere, elsewhere. Like, I don't know, Dorne. Dorne seems okay yeah, back then. Yeah, they were gonna send him to live with Stannis, and I guess that could have been... Weird. I mean, it would have been wouldn't have been any weirder than like breastfeeding at eight. So, got this is step up. It's a step up. You go, sweet Robin, with your bad self. Uh, speaking of sweet Robin's eating habits, everyone's still trying to get sweet Robin to eat his goddamn porridge. Your boy, and because this is my podcast, <laughs> also. And we're going to do it, everyone. I want to quote this line, and I want you all to imagine this scene, right? Yes, imagine it as in the Vale, in the Eerie, but also imagine it as a sunny, suburban family morning. And the minivan outside is like, it's getting started, and everyone is on the verge of being late to school, work, everyone's super stressed out, okay? And then Sweet Robin is over here just like, I do not let my porridge fly! This time, Robert flung the bowl, porridge, and honey and all. Peter Baelish ducked aside nimbly, but Maester Coleman was not so quick. <laughs> the wooden bowl caught him square in the chest, and its contents exploded upward over his face and shoulders. He yelped in a most unmaester-like fashion. <laughs> just Im imagine all of this in, like, slow-mo. You can just see the, the porridge flying across. Oh my gosh. Across the what a mess. camera. But, like, he goes into one of his shaking spells really badly. That's sad. Obviously. That's, sad. That's, like, what he does. It is sad. And it lasts, like, a few paragraphs of the story. Everyone's trying to help uh, make it pass for Sweet Robin. And we realize how weak he is, how bad his state has really become. He sleeps for 12 hours a day. The maesters struggle to figure out how much medicine they can give him without, you know, like, killing him. Same. Yeah. Me since 10, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the fact that there's so much space allotted to this shows you how relevant 
this is probably going to be to the story in Speed Robin's life. Yeah. It's just a wee bab. But kind of, not really. Yeah, he's he's still small. He's wee. <laughs> he wee. Sweets are decided upon to deliver the drugs to Sweet Robin, so they give him sweets, the pinch of sweet sleep in them to mask the taste. When everyone's gone, finally, Elaine offers her father some porridge, but her father hates porridge and asks for a kiss to break his fast. Gross. Glossing over it, like, wow, get a fucking job. Give him a fucking Hershey kiss. Don't they didn't make them. Don't touch that man. Don't touch that man. <laughs> Don't talk to strangers. Stranger yeah. danger. Littlefinger is like, that was so dutiful. But, and then gives her some other duties that she needs to do to prepare for all of their guests. And that includes mulling the wine and ensuring that they offer bread and cheese. Also, Sansa, you're the one who's going to greet our guests. Yeah, because no work from Littlefinger. There's that. I think he wanted to, like... Yeah, he wants her to learn shit. He wants her to learn shit, but I think there's a slight power thing going on here. Like, you can't just come out and be the one to greet them right away. You know, you gotta send, like, mm-hmm. someone else, I guess, to answer the door. Show. Well, look at Tyrion with Dorne. Not very powerful, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Peter then tells her that she has to change her clothes because she looks like a Tully. Uh, it would be insulting also for his bastard daughter to just, like, come out and dress up wearing, you know, Liza Aaron's clothes, who just died. And don't wear the Aaron colors, either. I know it may seem monotonous, but Sansa is really expressing her stewardship skill through this montage, right? It's kind of like how Arya's living her kind of psycho-citadel lifestyle, where she's learning scholarly things like healing and fighting, transcending your body, culture learning languages, courtly intrigues of her own environment, and Sansa is learning a good amount more of that, yes, as well, but she's also putting to use the things she already knew and learned in King's Landing, right? She's being given a chance to fly, so to speak, believe it or not, you know, like Little Bird. Exactly. Taking those first flaps. Oh, that was not the best metaphor. But first she's starting and practicing to fly in the nest before she really goes out there. Sansa, though, she's still scared, right? She's still a little afraid to fly. She shares her concerns with Littlefinger that, um, you know, Bronzeon Royce, I've like definitely met him multiple times before. He's he's come to our house and Littlefinger says, nah, he's not going to remember you. That's unlikely. You were just like some girl who was there. He had other things to concern himself with. Oh, Okay. You're just like some girl who's there. <laughs> also, unlikely, he says. There's no way Bronzion would know who you were, Sansa. Don't worry about it. Never. Never. It's not like he's like portrayed as super smart or anything. Never. Littlefinger says to tell Maddie to ready the solar, which is where he'll receive his guests. And they would be probably pretty pissed if he received them from the High Hall because. You know, that's pretty close to the seat of the errands. It's disrespectful, like we talked about. And Littlefinger then gives Sansa this little mini-tutoring session where she tries to understand how he's not on the same par as the other lords in terms of pedigree. She's sitting there thinking, wow, he's the Lord of Harrenhal, and he now basically has the veil. Like, they should be, you know, worshipping him. What is happening? 
And he says, well, I'm well-loved in Goldtown, and I have a few lordly friends, which, of course, we will meet them soon. As you have said, Eliana, they don't have brand recognition. I don't know some of these names. Who are you? Well, it's true, though. There are a couple of these people that, like, the only record of them in history is the Battle of the Seven Stars they fought on a side. And other than that, there's no known, like, Templeton and a couple other places will tell no known people in these houses. Like, no names. So George has some writing to do for the wins of winner. Oh, God. <laughs> He's going to flush that out. You know oh, is. absolutely. These Veil chapters are going to have lots of good info dumps in them, even in the wins of winner. So Sansa then says, but like, what if you just went back to Harrenhal and were Lord of Harrenhal? Like, that seems like a perfectly decent place to be Lord of as well and important. Right, like it's only huge. It's a mansion. It's only the whole Riverlands. Instead of it's having only to, the yeah. biggest fucking castle there is. Yeah, instead of dealing with all of this bullshit. Right, like it just seems like a lot of work, she says. Yeah, exactly. Uh, turns out, though, Littlefinger's like, I have no intentions of ever going to that castle. First of all, he says, it's a shitty castle for all of these <laughs> other reasons. And then he's like, also, it's cursed. Oh, oh, <laughs> it's really shitty, but also it could be cursed. And Sansa says, curses are only in songs and stories. Which I think is actually interesting that she's the one who says that. Like, excuse me, Littlefinger, you believe... Life is not a song, sweetling. Yeah. She's like, you did weren't you the one who told me this? You like, weak bitch. <laughs> so we see that she's growing and understanding from her own experiences, obviously, that songs and stories, that's not what life is. And that's especially in the context of her thinking, how great is this silence? How great is this quietness, everyone? Yeah, ever since she's come to the eerie, like... You know, a god's woman without gods, as empty as me. Like, she's just very stoic now. Lady Stark, you may survive us yet. Go to fucking Harrenhal, dog. <laughs> Get a job. At your own keep. Yeah. Littlefinger jokes about giving the castle to Cersei or the phrase, and Sansa's like, no, 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 not to Cersei. She's evil, and what if she finds out where I am? So Littlefinger, of course, says, then I might have to remove her from the game sooner than I'd planned. Provided she does not remove herself first. Peter teased her with a little smile. Ew. Ew. <laughs> In the Game of Thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you've planned for them. Mark that well, Elaine. It is a lesson Cersei Lannister still has yet to learn. Now, don't you have some duties to perform? Oh, Lord, she coming, y'all. Elaine Stone is coming. <laughs> the best part of that is like, sometimes they refuse to make the moves you've planned for them. Stares into camera. Absolutely. And like, a lot of this is, of course, George having that background in playing chess. Not that, you know, chess pieces move really on their own because this is not wizard chess. But it could be. There is magic. Anyway, sorry. One of the best uh, parts of the series. Um, and of course, this is likely one of the lines that provides a lot of inspiration for that title of that pawn to player thread. Yes, absolutely. Which are on Westeros if you haven't checked them out. There's a lot of good stuff there. Sansa goes off to get everything ready and we follow her learning to run a household and prepare to receive guests and the thought process behind why she does some of the things she does for example when she's telling the cook to 
bake some bread. She says to also make enough bread for 20 in case there are more men than we expected because of that sacred bread and salt guest rate thing. And she thinks about, you know, the phrase did break all of that when they killed my mother and my brother. But Bronze Jan Royce would never. He, he wouldn't. Yeah, this is actually incredibly smart. I don't feel like we see enough praise for this because this is like a really smart, like, good job, Sansa. We need a round of applause here. She did something Kat did with the phrase. And Lord Royce isn't stupid enough to do what the phrase did, right? Like, not in this political climate. In this economy, no. With what everyone thought of the phrase, no way. She's she's protecting her and Littlefinger and Sweet Robin. She's keeping them safe by doing this. Yeah, but it also, now that I think about it, is some good character work and setup. That inkling that Bronze Jan Royce takes guest right seriously for what's to come... In the solar, Sansa thinks carefully on the arrangement of the chairs and the table, and she's thinking ahead also to the needs of this meeting. If the conversation ends up going too long, they're going to need candles. And so she has some... <sighs> she has some scented beeswax candles from... <sighs> <laughs> beeswax candles from Lord Waxley. Yeah, it's a little brought cheesy. Up. And I mean, I, yeah, I mean, like, it's not any worse than, I guess, Lord Redwine having, wow, wine, <laughs> but still, like, Waxley. I mean, there are a lot of characters. Let's give George a break. But also, yeah. way to ruin a clever little passage with a nudge, a wink, and a chortle, George. Like, what is that? It's no plum. But also, I guess it's your book. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like how we're like, this is our podcast, we can do whatever we want. George is definitely like, this is my book, I can put in giants and... Uh, Ice spiders uh, and mirish swamps. I was talking about giants, the, the football team. Oh, giants right, and right. Oh, the Dallas Cowboys, that's the other one. Whatever they are. Whatever these are. <laughs> but yeah, coming back to this passage, a lot of this shows some great planning on Sansa's part, because we see how women in these sorts of meetings are such an important role in creating those alliances. We see it a lot in Fire and Blood. And women playing a role in that, like creating those conditions where important things can be discussed, or even partaking in those discussions themselves. And for Sansa to be thinking about that protection of guest right, as you said, Chloe, or you know, who sits next to whom, or even how the room is set up. Like this is important even nowadays in meetings. You can't like put people who hate each other next to each other. And creating that seamless environment for them to keep talking, even if it goes on late, ensures that the Lord's declarant can devote more of their time to discussing and make sure that there aren't going to be any gaps in the conversation. That way, everyone can try and talk and get a solution faster, more seamlessly. Whereas like a bad experience, uh, not having candles, for example, could be taken for bad hospitality or rudeness, could reflect poorly on her and on Littlefinger and just like disintegrate the entire deal. Yeah, they're really trying to come in peace on this and really make themselves look like, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. We are the good party. Yeah, we tried, I guess. So Sansa makes sure that everything is going well, that the whole everything is going to be great, and she goes to get her dress on. There was a gown of purple silk that gave her paws, and another of dark blue velvet slashed with silver that would have woken all the color in her eyes, but in the end, she remembered that Elaine was, after all, a bastard, and must not presume to dress above her station. 
The dress she picked was lamb's wool, dark brown and simply cut with leaves and vines embroidered around the bodice, embroidered around the bodice, sleeves, and hem in golden thread. It was modest and becoming, though scarce richer than something a serving girl might wear. Peter had given her all of Lady Liza's jewels as well, and she tried on several necklaces, but they all seemed ostentatious. In the end, she chose a simple velvet ribbon, simple velvet ribbon in autumn gold. When Gretchel fetched her Liza's silvered looking glass, the color seemed just perfect with Elaine's massive dark brown hair. Lord Rice will never know me, she thought. Why, I hardly know myself. Yeah, who is she? Who is she? <laughs> we talked about clothes a little bit earlier. We're going to do it again. Yes. We do that here. That's what we do. We do that. We do that. Sansa goes through quite a few clothes options here because... I mean, who doesn't do that? You know, go through like a million things. We do that. Land on an outfit. Yeah, everyone does that. This is like a normal thing. Uh, dark blue velvet, of course, and silver silk, as she says, would make her prettier, which, I don't know, there's that whole spiel from Cersei on like, yeah, you gotta use your women's weapons, Sansa. But of course, she doesn't want to stand out too much. She's not the one who's part of the conversation here. Plus, as discussed earlier... With Littlefinger, it is too close to the Aaron colors, which are definitely off limits. That would be very rude. And that gown of purple silk is gorgeous, which kind of actually reminds me of Daenerys' dress oh. in that first chapter where she's gifted that for her wedding. I'm not saying it's the same dress. I'm just saying it reminds yeah, me of that. Yeah. And purple could be too royal, though I don't know that we're necessarily given indication in A Song of Ice and Fire, that purple is a fabric that's associated with royalty. Like, it's obviously associated with royalty because, like, purple eyes amongst the Valyrian blood. Yeah. But it's also, when it comes to sigils and stuff like that, it's associated with houses like, I don't know, House Plum. Mm -hmm. Maybe House Redwine. Uh, house to House Dane, of course. Yes. But regardless, purple still, like, an expensive dye and silk and velvet are expensive fabrics, and it's just above her station. Like, they're trying to evoke humility. As Littlefinger pointed out, they don't have the power right now to go up against the Lord's declarant. We can't pull the same sort of power outfits that Liza did with Sansa. It would be very gaudy on us. Oh, yeah. So Sansa decides, yeah, I'm going to wear this brown dress that is described as modest and becoming, though scarce richer than something a servant girl might wear, which is definitely... That's definitely humility. And that same thing, I think, goes for the jewelry she chooses. Or she chooses not to do any jewelry. She picks a ribbon instead. And I think we're kind of also meant to see this description of Liza's jewelry being too ostentatious as a knock on Liza's taste. Because that idea that it's too ostentatious means that Liza might have had tacky taste. Because <laughs> yeah. as we all know, she struggled to hold back. She struggled. She's the she's the person who mixes too many elements, right? Yeah, she's a bit much. She is, in my opinion. Readings or stories that talk about taste, modesty, and richness when it comes to jewelry. I would recommend the chapters of Astrid in the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy because oh. I can make these recommendations here. <laughs> interesting, interesting. They're a fun read. I think that the movie's better than the books when it comes to the main character who actually has a personality in the movie and is nothing. Like, she's has no personality in the books. Hmm. But Okay, okay. So the Lord Declarant's alive. Sansa has studied their sigils because she doesn't know everyone's face, so she isn't sure if she'll know them. 
So just like in history in Jane Aaron's secession, Jane the Maid, I wonder if we can find a pattern to who supports Robert versus Harry uh, back in that secession. I think we're going to see something a bit like this, right? Like the Dance of the Falcons. We have Lord Redford. He has a Redford on, is short of stature with a neat gray beard and mild eyes. He supported Joffrey Aaron, the chosen heir. So I'm curious if he'll support Robert. Then you have Lady Anya Wainwood, and she is interestingly the only woman amongst the Lord's declarant. And she wears a deep green mantle with a broken wheel, which, uh, a broken wheel. That's like the dragon eating its tail. Yeah, I just think it's hilarious now. I, I'm just, I'm I think never it's a great one. She was Team uh, Harry, of course, as we know, so I'm. Uh, there's nothing in history that suggests otherwise of what House Wainwood did, sadly. Lord Belmore, who has six bell purple, he's pot-bellied, lots of chins, and a ginger gray beard. He was not in that secession crisis from after the dance, so he is out of this one. Simon Templeton has a black and pointy beard like Peter, and his nose is like a beak. He has icy blue eyes, and his sigil is nine black stars on gold saltair. He wasn't in that secession crisis either. And uh, I, I like to make the reference, obviously, between the Battle of the Seven Stars. So this is just kind of a fun reach or a fun veil, haha, <laughs> I guess. Um, and then we have young Lord Gilwood Hunter, which his sigil is five silver arrows fanned. And he became Lord super suddenly. His dad died abruptly after he had ruled for 60 years. The rumors were that he hastened his inheritance. He supported Joffrey Aaron in the secession for Jane the Maid. So I guess we could probably expect him to support Robert, especially per Littlefinger and what he owes Littlefinger. Sansa, though, I think this is interesting about Gilwood Hunter, who we learn later on probably didn't kill his father. That was his brother. But Clear his name. Clear his name. <laughs> Justice for Gilwood Hunter. Justice for Gilwood. Free Gilwood. I like how they call him young Gilwood Hunter now that I think about it, because... Young Gil. So like, he's not that young. He's like 50 or 40. But anyway, Sansa notices that Lord Hunter's cheeks are very red, which apparently means that he likes drinking. So Sansa makes sure to fill his cup often. But I do like this detail because it shows that Sansa is learning to be perceptive and understands you know, what kind of person someone is or what they want just by looking at them and how to accommodate those needs. Because, I mean, right now that makes her a good hostess. But later on, I think it's going to serve her quite well when it comes to negotiating, like we see with Peter and Nestor. Oh yeah, she's definitely absorbing. She's a sponge in these chapters. Yeah. In walks Lynn Corbray, shoulder-length brown hair, three ravens clutching a heart in their talons. Anime. <laughs> he does feel that way. Yeah, he's a, uh, what's, what is he? What's the, the archetype, Eliana? You know these things. Oh, I don't know if they have names for those. Well, I mean, they? like Sundari and... Those are the... We only have names for cute girls. Oh, we don't have actual boys? Thank God uh... for Japan. <laughs> um, I'll have to think about whatever we call that. Good, But good. He's, like, he's like the Vegeta, you know? But actually, Vegeta had a redemption arc, so he's not quite like that. Never mind. Yeah, no redemption for Lin. Finally, the Lord Royces come down, Nestor and Bronzeone. You know Nestor, but here's Bronzeone. He's enormous, he's solemn, and Sansa thinks back on all the time he spent at Winterfell, 
and she briefly thinks about revealing herself to him, but she remembers Bronzion didn't fight for Rob. Of course, we the reader know that Liza kept them well out of the war. Uh, Sansa might not realize or know all of that. He never fought for Rob. Why should he fight for me? The war is finished and Winterfell is fallen. But there is a hint that Bronzion Royce might recognize her uh, because he asks, do I know you? When she's pouring his cup, though that's laid aside very quickly for now by Nestor Royce. I love that uh, that line. Why should he fight for me? Because he's gonna, duh. Yeah. Because Valiant Ned's precious little girl, duh. And like you said, Liza was the one keeping them out of the war because Littlefinger told her to stay out of the war. Otherwise, the Vale Lords were rearing to yeah. go support the North. They want to support the North. They wanted to support Ned, dude. Ned yeah. grew up there. That's their boy. Yeah, they, we have um that memory of Sansa thinks about the time that Bronze Jan Royce was at Winterfell and how he was like wrestling with Ned and Sir Roderick. Yeah. They're bros. It's kind of like obvious that Bronze Yon is going to figure it out. He's gotta. Yeah, that's his bros little girl, dude. And then while we're at it, you know, talking about that, everyone starts talking about like, oh, Peter's bastard daughter. Are you a virgin? I mean, they didn't say it like that, but that's basically what, what was happening. That was the conversation. Ew, being a girl is really fucked up. Yeah, Lady Wayne would agree. She's like, what the hell is going on here, everyone? And asks them, is this what passes for courtesy at Hart's home? Anya Wainwood's hair was graying, and she had crow's feet around her eyes and loose skin beneath her chin, but there was no mistaking the air of nobility about her. The girl is young and gently bred and has suffered enough horrors. Mind your tongue, sir. Grandmama, I love you. Please be my grandmama. To be said like Anastasia in the movie Anastasia by FX. I, I was just thinking about that movie again recently. I was like, she like, when movie. she like gets the music back, she's like, oh, grandmama. I always think about that. Once Upon a December is a song that I could definitely see in Sansa's storyline. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> but uh, just the way that Anya Wainwood phrases all these, and you know, we know, we know that there's a later betrothal to Harry in the next chapter, but like here, in this moment, it, it just feels like Anya knows, right? Anya I kind of was knows. thinking about it. She has to know. Like, this whole gently bred, suffered enough horrors. I don't know. And the the only other thing I could imagine, she has to know from those. Like, if she didn't know, what, she struck a deal with Littlefinger about Harry, like, being an heir or something since he has no heir? I don't know. She has to know. it's, It's there. She knows. They know. At least, at least two out of, what, six, seven? No. Arguably the, some of the strongest, like, you know, important lords in their realm, too. Yeah. Arguably. Yeah. But anyway, whatever. Hors d'oeuvres are done. And so they head to the solar to go meet with Peter. And everyone goes in and they take a seat at the table, except Lynn Corbray, who's like, I'm alt. I'm going to go stand next to the hearth instead. Then he smiles at Lothar Brune, and Sansa's like, I guess Lynn Corbury's handsome for an older dude, but there's something really off and weird about his smile. And so the meeting begins, where Peter throws everyone off 
by agreeing that yes, we need to protect Robert Aaron. He's all, we're done, right? And they're like, nah, we're here to take you down, little finger. And they try to convince him to leave. They're like, you need to go take care of your riverlands. That's where you live. And those are your people. And it's a shit show there. And he's all, I'm going to stay here with my stepson. Yeah, Bronzio and Royce is like, oh, you really don't need to. Sweet Robin can stay here and we're going to just raise him at Runestone. It's going to be great. He's going to learn all the things that a young lord ought to learn, such as the art of war or matters of the spirit or the magic of friendship. <laughs> he literally says the art of war and matters of the spirit. Um, Littlefinger also says, but Sweet Robin has all of these things here with... He's companions with my daughter Elaine. They get along great, though maybe we would like to have an older boy around that he can look up to. Wow, Lady Anya Wainwood. What about your nephew, Harry Harding? Yon Royce is like, sure, they can be friends when he comes to Runestone. <laughs> it's a good, it's a pretty good comeback on Yon Royce's part. It really was, because he doesn't seem very quick otherwise, because he's just, like, this big, solemn man. Yeah, this is a great- this entire passage, though, we're just gonna say, is- in this entire chapter, with all of the dialogue, it's a great way that George showcases his screenwriting, right? His- his yeah. old writing for television skills, because a lot of the information comes out via dialogue. Yeah, he's a great dialogue writer. So Bronze Yon says, give us Lord Robert. No one gets hurt. You can leave unharmed. And that like turns the conversation. Littlefinger's like, is that a threat? And then Lady Wainwood's like, no, no. Okay. You have to understand, Liza Aaron wasn't an Aaron. She was Lord Aaron's wife. And you are a rando who just happened to marry her. You don't go here. And then Lord Hunter says, yes, she was already like kind of out of line disposing of us but you you really have no right to do that Nestor of course uses this moment to come to Peter's aid to white knight him because of course that gift of the gates of the moon is just hanging out back there Bronzion says Robert Aaron is John's son and that he belongs to the Vale and of course these men think that they are of the Vale Templeton this time raises the matter of armies and again Peter's like oh is that a fucking threat so Lynn Corbray's all like, I'll show you a threat. And he takes out his sword, a Valyrian steel sword, Lady Forlorn. And he's like, yeah, let's fight for Robert Aaron. <laughs> and I was just like, whoa, what just happened? This party went up to 100. And Peter's like, I am unarmed. And Lynn Corbray says, then you should get a sword from Lothar Brune or he, then he go, says, or draw that dagger. I'm like, oh, yes, that dagger. This dagger that Peter Baelish has. Daggers in the dark, more like. Yes. I want to point out, though, that it feels noteworthy, at least on one level for literary purposes, that, you know, Lynn Corbray's threat, it's that third one after Peter asked twice already, is that a threat? Because it establishes a pattern for readers to recognize what kind of meaning this is. But also, I wonder if Peter, what, gave Lynn instructions to, like, wait for me and is like, wait for them to threaten me twice or ask if something is a threat twice before reacting. Because then, again, it makes it a pattern and it shows that escalation. Yeah, Peter doesn't want to implicate Lynn here. 
He wants the other lords to implicate themselves first and for Lynn to sweeten the deal at the very end. Yeah. He's the cherry on top. That hot-headed Lynn Corbray was ready to rumble, you know? Definitely. Lothar Brune is ready to reach for his sword when Bronzion is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you a Corbray or a Frey? We are guests here. And with that, the guest right is broken, which gives Littlefinger the moral high ground, something I never want to say ever again in a sentence. Well, it's quote-unquote moral high ground. Right, obviously. Ugh, I just feel dirty saying it, like I need to take a shower, you know? Yeah. Littlefinger was moral. Now, the Lord's Declarant, by way of Lynn Corbray, have broken the peace and they have to make amends. So he says, fuck your declaration. Give me a year. I'll make everything right. And none of us want war. If in a year everything still sucks, well, then you guys can have the veil. Yeah. Well, I'll just go. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's not that easy. Absolutely not. So yeah, Peter gets his year. And Bronteon Royce is like, we're not all fooled. Which, yeah, I mean, yeah. Though... Littlefinger has played them all in this, and they, quite a few of them know it. He's come to this, like, it is a game, right? And he made sure to catch them all off guard from the moment that they came into the room. And he was like, yes, I agree with this declaration. Because they all expected to have that advantageous position, and they thought that they had made that first move with the declaration, but it was Peter's counter that wiped the board clean for him to just make all of his moves. A feast for falcons! There is a feast after... Yes, a feast for falcons. Not all the guests stayed at this feast, though. Bronzion Royce left, and so did Lynn Corbray to keep the charade up. The food's humble, and Sansa later thinks Littlefinger had to have bewitched the lords. She heads to his solar to make him deconstruct what just happened. He is winning wars with a quill when she walks in. He's writing at his desk, and she asks him what is going to happen in a year. And so he thinks... Redfort and Wainwood are old. They could die. Gilwood will be murdered by his brothers, probably by Harlan, who, he reveals, really killed the father of House Hunter. In for a penny, out for a stag, he says, which kind of makes me think that's a little mini Renly, Stannis, Roberty jab there. Yeah, I could see it. I could see it. I don't think I really understand the saying, I'm going to be honest. In for a penny, out for a stag. Uh, you made more money off of what it, like, you paid a penny for it, and now you're getting okay. a stag for it. Got it. Yep. Okay. Okay. It's like, uh, it's like the stock market. Yes. Investing. Okay. I understand now. He's investing in, uh, Gilwood <laughs> and Harlan. Got it. And I guess he also plans on, what, buying Belmore, yeah. befriending Templeton. <laughs> What's he gonna do? Just be like, hey, Templeton, wanna go out to the bar? Grab some drinks. Yeah, I'll buy you a glass of Arbor Gold. Yeah, he's gonna do it. What he did to Nestor Royce, whatever. <laughs> he thinks that Bronze Jan Royce though isn't very much a threat on his own. I feel like that's a huge mistake, right? Like Bronze Yon isn't a threat on his own. Uh, he's a pretty powerful vassal in the Eyrie, and with the knowledge he knows and the closeness he has to the North, I mean, these are people that could turn on Littlefinger at any moment. Yeah, agreed. But of course, the hook, line, and sinker of why this chapter is such a great, phenomenal chapter is this last passage. The candlelight was dancing in his eyes. Sir Lynn will remain my implacable enemy. 
He will speak of me with scorn and loathing to every man he meets, and lend me his sword to every secret plot to bring me down. That was when her suspicion turned to certainty. And how shall you reward him for this service? Littlefinger laughed aloud. With golden boys and promises, of course. Sir Lynn is a man of simple tastes, my sweetling. All he likes is gold and boys and killing. Part of why his downfall is inevitable is this pride he takes here in Sansa learning and matching her wits to his. He's absorbed in himself to the point that he doesn't really realize the student is going to become the master in the end, and she's going to take his weaknesses and exploit them. He thinks he's being really clever, and Sansa is this pliant girl to tell him so, the one Cat would never have been, and the one that Liza was. But Sansa isn't quite so doughy as Liza in that, and it's even worse for Littlefinger because she's learning. Yeah, she's learning because Littlefinger is ensuring that she's in the room and is learning all of his strategies and his moves and how he plays. He's the, he's the one who's underestimating his pieces here, not just Cersei. Like, Littlefinger's not a better father than Ned was Ew. to Sansa. Like, he's not her dad, first of all, and he's being extremely predatory. And... But Ned was afraid to have Sansa in the room for, like, major decisions and discussions, like, when it came to politics. He didn't want her in the courtroom at King's Landing when people were making appeals. And even though it was, like, good, because Sansa herself would have to make an appeal at court a few chapters later. But here, you know, Sansa's getting the chance to learn by doing and she's seeing how the game is played because she gets to be in the room. Yeah, she is in the room where it happens. And... It's a good sense of world building in this chapter, right? In the last few chapters, it makes the veil, it's an expansive place. It feels like we're diving into a whole new pocket kingdom, right? A smaller scale King's Landing for Sansa to really flaunt her stuff in practice. Yes. This is one of the reasons, of course, that we've discussed it before. Like, the veil chapters are something I'm really looking forward to in wins. They're going to be extremely special in the Winds of Winter. I'm I'm excited because just like from all this setup, and the, like we said last episode, the powder keg that is the veil, they're all stationed, ready to blow, both sides. So, and Elaine, too, just gets better. It does. It ends on a killer passage as well. Both of these chapters really have. Joining us for Elaine, too, discussing these great passages next week is a very special guest. Yeah, Ashea from History of Westeros. I'm really excited to have her on. That is going to be fun. It will. As always, you guys, you can follow us on social media at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter. You can send us an email if you want at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and maybe you just want to listen to us, so be sure to subscribe. You can find us on iTunes, on Google Play, on Podbean, where you could apparently also comment, Stitcher, Acast, and Spotify. And hey, if you have a chance, check out our Patreon. Our tiers start at $1, and $5 and up members get a cool episode every month. This month's episode that is special to patrons is going to be about Sansa Stark in The Winds of Winter uh, in her Elaine one sample chapter, and just the future of Sansa in the books. Anyway, thank you, everyone, very much. Yeah, thanks for listening, you guys. This has been a blast. Thanks for joining us for our 34th episode. 
Wow. Here's to 35. I know. We're kind of just chugging along. Wow. We're going to change. Like, we're going to move up a census group in a second. I was just telling Eliana this, but our 50th episode is actually on the week that we started. If we don't skip any from here on out. So we aren't allowed to never do a podcast again until May. (laughs) What have we done? What have we done? But yeah, our anniversary, you guys, our 50th is the week that we started. The first week of May. So oh, we're golden. Soon. So we become soon. the golden company. A golden company. The <laughs> the bitter steel. The bitter steel. I that is a great it's a great motto. It really is. It's a I want more. It's got layers like an I can't onion. wait for part two of Fire and Blood. Oh, I can't believe I said that. Okay, you guys, this has been fun. Thank you for listening. I as always am Chloe. You can find me on the internet as www.liesandarborgold.com or at Lies and Arbor on Twitter and Tumblr. And I'm Eliana. You can find me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or as Arithmetric over on Twitter. Have a great rest of your day, guys. Goodbye.